everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Jill. Happy Monday, everyone. Today's um, episode is an interview I did with <clears throat> a librarian turned author, Eva Yurchik, about her new book, The Department of Rare Books and Special Collections. This is a book about books, a book about libraries, a book about special collections and rare books in libraries, a book about missing books. Books like historical manuscripts go missing. And our main character, uh, Liesl, has to figure out what happened to these books, these very fancy manuscripts that have gone missing. And, um, you know, the men in charge are like, no, you can't tell anyone that these books are missing because we have donors we have to keep happy. And so, um... It is, again, books about books. We love to see it. We love to see it. So that is today's episode. And um, if you want to get a hold of the podcast, our website is professionalbooknerds.com. We are on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. And you can always email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. So I think that's everything. So yeah, if you like books about books, if you like books about libraries... You might want to try the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections by Eva Yurchik. And with that, I hope you enjoy this week's episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. Hi, Eva. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. I'm so excited to be here. Should be a lot of fun. So can you start by giving our listeners a brief introduction to your book, The Department of Rare Books and Special Collections? Yeah, definitely. Uh, The Department of Rare Books and Special Collections follows Liesl Weiss when she takes over the reins of her university's rare books library under less than ideal circumstances. Um, The longtime head of the library suddenly takes ill and she steps in but at every turn she's reminded that she's never going to fill these big shoes and things sort of immediately start to go wrong uh first a rare book goes missing then a librarian does um and over and over she's told to just keep the doors open keep the donors happy and not to uh, not to shake things up um but when she starts to investigate these disappearances she realizes that Um, nothing in the place is as it seems. So I don't want to give away too much else because of spoilers, but uh, you have missing books and missing people and all sorts of fun stuff like that. And it's a great look behind the scenes of a rare books library, which is, I think, a really fun part of the book. Absolutely. And I wanted to ask about that because you, um, you are a librarian, you have experience working in an academic library setting, but I think I also read that you have experience working in like a rare book collection as well. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. So it was when I was a grad student. So when I was uh, going to library school, I had the opportunity to work at the university's rare books library. And I think that that was so meaningful because I was very much a fish out of water. I felt like everyone who I worked with had been there for a very long time. They knew everything about everything. Um, And uh, because of that, they weren't as dazzled as I was by that collection and by that place and I would go into work every day and it would just be I mean it was incredible you'd go down 
um, to the basement and you might have, um, I don't know, Frederick Banting's Nobel Prize or a first edition of Alice in Wonderland or, you know, these hand done um, manuscripts from the 16th to 15th century um, you would, you know, papyrus scrolls, thing, things like that, that you'd write up in the elevator with. Um, and for everyone else, it was just a job. And that's not fair. They, they loved the stuff and they knew everything about it. But it was just an environment that I didn't think I, that I would ever find my way into. I sort of stumbled my way into the job by uh, lying about the languages that I spoke. Um, so I was just a grad student and I needed the work. Um, and I was just so in love with the setting and it was, the space itself was beautiful where books libraries often are, libraries often are, you know, they're, they're meant to be these grand institutions, but my favorite part of it were these, were the basements. So the library had, um, two layers like basement one and basement two, and they were huge, um, like football fields upon football fields of just rolling stacks that had really been installed at different times and were kind of like jimmied into place. And so you, you could actually get lost down there. You, it was sort of hard to find your way in and out. And there were these kind of cages <laughs> that, uh, that things were locked behind. And it was just the sort of most mysterious place. And I loved working down there so much. You know, the basements were the least glamorous part, but they were my favorite part because it really seemed like you could stumble upon something down there. But also they were a little bit spooky <laughs> because you could never tell really if somebody was down there with you because it was just sort of this, um, yeah, huge cement chamber with you and uh, hundreds of thousands of books. So very spooky and very cool place to work. Yeah. I mean, that's like prime setting for weird things happening, like missing books and missing people. <laughs> right, right. It's hard to not let your imagination sort of run away with it. So I would, you know, one of the projects that I worked on, I had to work exclusively in the basement. I worked down there a lot. I handled gifts. And so when things would come in, I would just, you know, um, write up like just uh, a catalog of them, like a listing of them to go to the appraiser. And so I was always just sort of down there working in the basements. And we had this one huge one. It was thousands of books that came from it was Marshall McLuhan's private library and we had gotten them they'd just been in storage and I was unpacking them so I think I spent probably two straight months working down there every day by myself and it was so spooky (laughs) um it was so spooky but and but it was nice and yeah and that's when my imagination started to sort of run away like what could happen down here what kind of secrets uh, could happen down here and I, one of my favorite scenes in the book is pretty early when two of the characters who have a little bit of history with one another mm-hmm. are down there in that basement um, going through the stacks and just having this sort of private moment with each other um, and yeah and so so something like that could happen in that basement I, I often imagine that it had probably been the setting for romance <laughs> over the years because it was such an easy place to hide yeah um, so yeah it could be something spooky or something great could happen down there one thing I loved about this book is that you have you know Liesl she's sort of like an older female protagonist is probably the best way like we're not it's not a particular point of view where he's just seen often and so it was really nice and being um I don't want to say like of a certain age, but she's not 20. And that, that does add tension at parts and in her various relationships and interactions with some of the other characters. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what made you want to have like a slightly older woman? She's not old. You know what I'm saying, but can you like talk a little bit about what 
that decision where that came from? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I think it's fair to call her an older woman. I think that she, you know, if she chose to do so, she could retire probably. Yeah. But you know, so that's, that's that she's at that stage in her life. I just think, I think I've always thought that there are two stages of a person's life, particularly a woman's life that they're, that are sort of really interesting. There's kind of the, your, your coming of age. So maybe from like 15 to 25, where you just feel your feelings really deeply. Um, and it's, and you sort of have the freedom in your life to have experiences. And then there's sort of the latter stage in your life where if you have children, they're grown. Um, if you, um, you know, you probably, or you might, or you hopefully have a little bit more sort of financial freedom. Um, so, you know, you can go out to dinner when you want to go out to dinner in that sense, you know, I'm not going to write, if I were to write, um, a book about, I don't know, somebody at my stage of life, it would be pretty boring because at four 30 every day, the character would like rush to kindergarten to pick up her kid. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, there's just not, yeah. not a lot of time for self and crimes. Um, but also, Um, with an older woman or a woman at a stage um, of her life where Liesl is, there's just, she's had so much experience. And I think that's really borne out in the, in the book, you know, she has relationships with her coworkers that she's had for 20, 30, 40 years. Some of these relationships have gone through these phases where maybe something was once a friendship and then it turned into a romance. And then maybe there was acrimony and, you know, so there's all this history that she's drawing upon, you know, at her age, she sort of knows so much. She's made mistakes. She's, she's learned from them. She's in a place where she can be a mentor to, to other people. Like it's just, there's so much to mine there for a character. Um, and you don't see it. Well, you don't, you don't read it all that much. Um, and I think, I don't know, she's still, She's still a person who has sort of romantic desires. She's still a person who can make and will can make mistakes and will make mistakes. It's just such an interesting part of your life. And then on the other hand, I had been hearing a lot to or reading a lot from women who were sort of entering Liesl's phase of life about this idea of how invisible you become Mm -hmm. um, at that stage of life. And that was something that I was thinking a lot about too. Um, I was writing the book uh, right when I, I had a child. And I, so I've been thinking a lot about how the way that people looked at me had really changed. Um, you know, when you're like pregnant, you get looked at so much. It's hard not to, cause it, there's just like this, this thing about you that everyone can see. And then it goes away, but then you're carrying a kid around and then you're just the caretaker for this kid. And just slowly in your life, you become less invisible. And I hear women who are older than me talk about that all the time, this invisibility that comes like you're just wallpaper. Um, and that seems really uh, stressful <laughs> and difficult yeah. to sort of not be seen in a person uh, as a person that way. And I sort of see it and I recognize it happening. And it's something that I really wanted to interrogate and think about, you know, for the, for the purpose of solving a crime or having to figure something that out, you know, that invisibility can be useful. Often you're in a room and um not not that you escape notice but maybe your intelligence escapes notice in a, in a certain way because with that invisibility I think comes a certain level of underestimation mm-hmm. um, 
but yeah, I think that I think about that a lot in a professional setting, you know, a woman can be in charge and still have that sense of invisibility, where if there's a group of men, a group of men can sort of be talking to each other. And the woman in the room who might have the answer might never be seen. So something I've been thinking about a lot in the, the lens of that, um, of, of a character that's Liesl's age seemed like a really interesting way to explore it. Yeah, that, that sort of ties into some of my questions, which was, you know, there are, you have a, a couple different lines to, that stood out in particular about how it sort of suggested that Liesl has gotten used to tone policing herself so as to not upset male egos which <laughs> I think is something that a lot of people, like we are all very used to doing that. And it's, it's so, it's, it's infuriating to have to do that. <laughs> so like reading these, I'm like, I feel this, I feel this so hard. Like I have been there. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so interesting in my professional life. Um, I'm a librarian, as you said, and I've um, almost only ever uh, reported to women like my, my bosses have have always been women and so I think that there might be there might be women who I have worked for who will read this book and be like oh I must be Liesl the character of Liesl must be based on me and I would say that no it's all of you because in almost every professional setting I've been in I've watch this mm-hmm. and often the women that I've reported to have been women who are really impressive in certain ways like you know if you encounter if I've encountered them before I've started working for them like I've, if I've encountered them um, at a conference or I've read about some work that they've done I'm like oh that's that's intimidating like oh this is this this woman clearly knows a lot and then you kind of step into a professional setting with them and you watch them yeah do that tone policing with colleagues or um, we have to tiptoe around feelings mm-hmm. um, of perhaps inadequacy, you know, um, yeah, yeah. Um, inadequacy of others in the room. And I just, it, it is infuriating, but it's also really interesting how, like I said, it's not one person. It's so many of these women that I've worked for have taught themselves to do that and do it in an almost identical way. Yeah, no, it, yes, it's, it's something I, I do sometimes. And even though I am aware that it's kind of BS, but also being aware that if I come across as like too aggressive or, you know, I have to use soft language for a variety of reasons and I still do it, even though I know I shouldn't have to, but it's so kind of ingrained in a lot of our society and our culture and just like working relationships. Yeah. 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 You're just really taught not to create conflict. Yeah. But then at the same time, that sort of becomes that it's also your job to dispel conflict when someone else is creating it. And, and I think that that's part of what leads to that invisibility. It's like, you're being asked to make yourself smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. We're really, <laughs> really about like gender politics in the workplace. That's okay. I love talking about gender politics in the workplace. And I think, and I think that's what we see with Liesl. And a lot of people have responded to those parts where she really is. I mean, this is a woman who has been doing the job of the leader in the library of the library for a pretty long time but has been asked to make herself invisible to do mm-hmm. so. So somebody, you know, so that the public face is somebody else. 
And then even when she finally gets that job, when hers is the face that, the, that is doing that work, even then she sort of has to make herself smaller um, because it makes people uncomfortable that she's the one in that role. Yeah, that's something that I find writing the book helped me think through that in my work, but I still don't think that I fully wrapped my head around it because I don't know what the solution to it is. Yeah. I, I don't know either. Yeah. To, I don't your know po- either. to your point, Jill, you said that you find yourself doing it and I find myself doing it too. It's not like, Oh, I was cured. I wrote the book and I was cured. And I don't say, um, um, yeah, I don't use those little clauses at the end of emails <laughs> to sort of soften what is yeah. soften what I'm saying. And I don't uh, wind up taking minutes in every meeting <laughs> that, you know, I still, I still do those things that haven't cured me, but it was useful to think about them really deeply. Um, it's interesting to me that you mentioned that you report to, uh, you have reported to a lot of women because librarianship, as you know, is very uh, women-dominated field. And yet um, a lot of library leadership is men. And that's sort of the situation, as, as you've talked about, Liesl is, is in these men in positions of power are making her job a lot more difficult, um, especially as you said in um, your kind of introduction about the book, there had been this theft and they're like, no, we can't tell anybody because we have to make donors happy. And she's like, and sort of what we've been talking about, she's like, I'm the person who should be in charge telling people about this, but she can't because patriarchy. (laughs) It's crazy, isn't it? Yeah. So it's funny that what you say about librarianship, because you're right, totally female dominated, but if you look at the heads of most of those libraries, they still are really often men. Um, I, you know, that's, that's changing slowly. Um, and now we'll see, you know, we're, we're see we're seeing that shift up um, a little bit, but yeah, it is really interesting. There's no, there's no explanation for that besides the patriarchy. If like yeah. 90%, I don't think it's 90%. It's probably less. <laughs> I, I should have these statistics at hand if I'm going to talk about this. But if such a large percentage of your workforce is female and so many of these uh, positions of authority are filled by men, if that doesn't raise your eyebrows, like what do you what do you think explains yeah. that? <laughs> I know. It's, it's very glaringly obvious. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, as I was reading the book, I, I couldn't help but think about some of the real life library and also museum thefts that have happened in the world. Like, you know, back in 2020, there's a big article about the, um, the, the Carnegie library with their like $8 million theft or something like that. And, um, I'm, it, it's interesting to me that you, you know, the, the books in the manuscripts that go missing are, they're like real books, right? Like that you, you mentioned. And I'm wondering, did you ever consider just like making up titles to be stolen and kind of attributing your own history and value to them? Or did you always want to use real books? I think I always wanted to use real books because I found that some of the stuff you just, the, the real story is always going to be more interesting than something that um, you can make up. And listen, I did take liter- liberties. The reason that I never <laughs> actually name 
the the library or the university of the library where the stuff is set even though it's like a major university and rare books collection in toronto like you can infer <laughs> because the some of the materials that i wanted to work with that i placed at this library are not actually in the library yeah. they're 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 at other institutions but i found the materials themselves so interesting that i that i wanted to that i wanted to work with them in this sense so the plant and polygot bible which is you know the first shoe to drop is so so interesting because um like i say in the book you know there's this limited number of them printed there there had been one up for auction pretty recently and i spent a lot of time with auction catalog and um auction catalogs are so funny because you very rarely you know you don't get a lot of information about why is this thing for sale and who bought it but there's subtext there like the thing is for sale because the person who has had it in their family collection for a really long time which is what the case was with this one because there weren't other records of sale for for a long time so with this one it was like it's probably some like British lord who has a title who is now hard up and is selling this to pay some debts more more power to them and we don't know where it went oh no we oh was that one do we know where it went I can't I can't remember but I think that it might have wound up in private collection which is also like you know maybe maybe someone with newer money bought it great interesting and maybe we'll hold it and then resell it for a profit that's interesting that so many of the of the edition of these editions that were printed were like lost in a shipwreck that's great you can't you can't make that up that's so that's fair that's so interesting you know, the, the Peshawar manuscript, which is the other sort of major one that the story hinges, hinges on, um, you know, act, that one actually was carbon dated. Um, the academic papers about the carbon dating are really interesting in that they sort of get, um, you know, academic papers are quite dry reading material, but mm-hmm. these sort of get like snappy with each other um, and are sort of like insulting to the method of how that was done and the results. And people really got in their feelings about the process of this carbon dating. So that was really cool to learn about. But also the the way that, you know, that manuscript's history, since it was sort of dug up in the Peshawar, was interesting because it was, you know, a, a farmer who dug it up in his field. Like that, that stuff's so cool. <laughs> you know, again, I don't think that I could have invented that. And, you know, there were there were other ones that were just materials that I had read about over time. The Vesalius, um, which is the anatomy manuscript, is one that we actually do hold um, in Toronto. That's one of the ones that I've written in the elevator with. Um, <laughs> and that one, that one is so cool because it is the, the author's own uh, first edition that he did notes on to do improvements for the second. Like that, that's so cool to think about the history of those things. So, so yeah, the research into those manuscripts was such a fun part of the work um, that I, I wouldn't have invented new ones because it would have robbed me of that fun of looking through all those auction catalogs and theorizing about why something was on sale. Okay. That makes sense to me. Like, you're right. Like it, it's, you know, it would be one thing if you made up some manuscript and there was like a shipwreck involved, but that there was like an actual shipwreck or that it was actually 
dug up, but yeah. All right. That's yeah. Fair. And I think that's part of the fun. So if you're a reader and you read this book, I really encourage you to Google some of these manuscripts and, and hear some of their, and, you know, read some of their histories and look up, you know, a lot of those, these stuff like the auction catalogs you can find on the open web, some of the academic papers it might be a little bit harder to get to. Um, but it is really interesting. The sort of conversations that um, scholars have been having about some of these manuscripts for years. Um, and then you mentioned sort of the real thefts, the high profile thefts mm-hmm. in libraries that had happened. Researching those was super fun too. And the way that they've, the way that they've been handled, one of my favorite ones, favorite ones, of a favorite theft. I know I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that things are being <laughs> stolen. But there's one... Oh, and I can't remember whether it's Oxford or Cambridge. I'm tempted to Google it now, but that's okay. You can, uh, listeners, Google it after the fact. There you go. So um, a couple of years ago, so I think after the book was written, probably after I'd sold it, like recently, they came out that from this major library collection, like I said, either Oxford or Cambridge, that actually stuff had been stolen from them, like for 10 20 years and they had known about the thefts and they hadn't told anyone because they wanted to protect the library's reputation and for a long time they had just said oh it's probably just missing in the stacks we'll find it in the stacks and they did exactly what these characters in the book did where they wouldn't admit to themselves to the world that really this valuable thing had you know this rare singular thing had disappeared from under their noses and it was only I think the library got new leadership I can't remember why they actually announced it but then they did this whole big press push just in the last like I said a year and a half two years a huge press push saying we are confessing that these things were stolen and if you know anything about them and help us recover uh, these precious works I think they it might have been a Darwin first edition or something like that. I'll yeah. have to I'll have to get my de- my details straight because I find that one I find that one really really interesting um, about the way that they hid that and then finally confessed and it really you know that that is how some of these thefts are treated and that's an interesting yeah. part of it too I think. Yeah, I I read in another interview did that part of what interested you um, about this was sort of examining the idea of the person who would steal this kind of thing because you're really limited in what you could do with it, which is not much. Like you can't, you can't auction it. You can't sell it. Um, you know, you could maybe use it as collateral on the black market. Like there's, you really can't do anything with it other than put it on your bookshelf and hope nobody notices or just hide it. <laughs> so like what kind of person does decide to do this other than just like, I don't even know what kind of person decides to do this. Someone who loves the books. Um yeah, I read a lot. I really dug into sort of newspaper clippings and things like that about these uh, rare book fests. And, and, you know, art theft is is super similar. They're yeah. a super similar mm-hmm. world where I think it used to be easier to offload this, this type of stuff. But now, you know, there are pretty good communication networks that the rare books libraries and mu- museums and galleries to have with each other. Um when something goes missing that like put out a call that say hey don't if somebody is trying to sell this to you don't buy it and there's pretty detailed research into the provenance of materials that happens so if you steal something really like what are you going to do with it right (laughs) So, so you do have instances um 
where you'll have like a sort of smash and grab thefts with people who don't know any better and they'll steal something and then they find that they can't resell it. But with a quiet theft, like the one in the book where something goes, where something goes missing or, you know, with a lot of these quiet thefts that you, um, that you read about in the papers, really the people who steal it aren't stealing it to sell it. They're stealing it to, to have the object and, you know, they'll, go into people's homes or apartments sort of decades after they've done these thefts and the stuff's just sitting on their bookshelves, like you said, or sitting in a filing cabinet and they just wanted to, to be with the thing. And there's something really beautiful about that to me. I mean, listen, I think that these things should be in the public collections as, as much as possible. And I would, and I think that you know the collecting of them so that others have access to them is I think that's so that's where we should be yeah. going but but I mean you can kind of understand the impulse can't you to say you know I've devoted my life to the study of these things to the study and acquisition of these things for for other people and to have a few maybe that you get so passionate about that you just really do want to keep them for yourself I get it like to an extent I get it I mean yeah to an extent to an extent, I can understand if, especially in like a rare books, uh, library or a museum where if it's art theft, like if there's something you just really love and are, are really passionate about and you just, you just want to have it for yourself. I, I yeah. kind of get it. I kind of get it. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a certain narcissism to that too. You know, I sort of think about it kind of like in the Tom's Crown Affair. Do you remember that movie? Yes, I love that movie. Yeah. Me too. Oh my God. I love that movie. Um, Pierce Brodison and Rene Russo. Great work, so guys. So Great good. work. Um, but but yeah, no, and again, like he steals the painting so he could have it on his wall. And with these rare book thefts, you know, you steal the painting so you could, the, the book so you can have it in your own collection. And that's narcissistic to an extent too. You're like, oh, I like, I, I am worthy of this thing. And the general public is not worthy of this thing. And this thing is so great and special that it should only belong to me. I think yeah. that, you know, that reveals something about your character that you would actually carry that out. But I mean, it is an interesting psychology to think about. That's true. That is true. Yeah. Um, throughout the book, the topic of mental health frequently comes up and I'm sort of, you know, how did you go about researching and, and writing those scenes so as to make sure that they were handled as sensitively as you could? Yeah, you know, I think the idea of uh, mental health in the workplace, especially, is something that we've been uh, thinking about and talking about better in recent years. And I think in the book, there are two, two pretty strong examples of the of the different ways that depression in particular can manifest and I will say that one of those uh one of those manifestations of depress depression is something that I have um I have seen really closely in my in my life um and so and it was the one that I had a much stronger understanding of and it's the a quieter one it's you, you know Liesl Liesl's husband John has suffered from de- through uh, from depression through his life um and again it was useful to me and interesting to me to write that to write that down mm-hmm. and to think about what that looks like through a life 
you know, spent, and they, these were characters who have spent their entire lives with each other and what, what it would be like to be the partner of someone, mm-hmm. of someone who was, um, who was ill in that way. And then there's another manifestation of mental health that's also explored sort of through a marriage, through a, through a partnership. Um, that is, I think, it's like the, the, the louder way we think about depression is sort of the sort of when you think about a depressed person this is what you think a depressed person might do or, or how you think that they might be might behave um and i that you know i spent more time actually just researching and reading personal accounts and things of people because that was one that i think i had less uh less sort of direct in my, in my, in my home and direct sphere experience with, but it's something that I really wanted to, uh, really wanted to understand. So reading, um, um, Miriam Taze's novel, which is called, uh, All My Puny Sorrows, um, about, about the two sisters and uh, her having had that experience with her, with her own sister, um, I read that a few years ago and that was really like a jumping off point for me to really want to explore um, that type of dispre- depression as a, as a subject. So I tried to treat it as um, sensitively as I, as I could. And, but and one of the things that I really wanted to explore was the idea of, yeah, of that, of that partnership mm-hmm. and the, the role of the marital partner when your partner is ill in that way, what you are able to do as a help and the, and the limits of the help that you're able to give the guilt that arises when you fail. Um, All those things, those were, those were really interesting questions to me. Well, the book is delightful. If you are a librarian, if you are a reader, if you are a book person, it's a book about books. It's great. It's great. Um, and I just have one final question, which is what do you hope readers take away from the Department of Rare Books and Special Collections? Um, I hope they take away the feeling of a real love of books and libraries. Um, I think that if you are a person who has spent time in a library or with librarians, whether that's, you know, an academic library or rare books library, or just your sort of local public library branch down the street, I think you, I hope that they take away that um, real feeling of uh, sort of warmth and feeling among friends when you're among the books there. I hope that's something that readers walk away with. Great. Eva, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. This was great. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Jill Grunenwald and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, 
be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food. So come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app.